0: Welcome to HealthCom Central, where we unpack theories and frameworks that can help you create more effective communication to improve both health outcomes and health equity. I'm your host, Karen Hilliard, behavioral scientist and longtime communication practitioner. If you're looking for fresh approaches that get real results, you are in the right place. So let's get started. Hello, HealthCom nerds and HealthCom novices, and welcome to another episode of HealthCom Central. Today, we're gonna to be taking a look at a construct or series of constructs, really, that is part of many, many behavior change frameworks and theories, and that construct is social norms. One of the things that I try to do here on the podcast is to unpack some of these constructs and frameworks for you so that if you are considering using them as the basis for a campaign or a set of messages or an intervention, or if you are conducting research of some kind and hope to publish using something related to one of the constructs that we discuss, that you'll have enough information to go out and do your own research, that you'll know the right words to include in a search string, and that you'll have some articles or publications to get you started and give you a grounding in the topic. And then you'll hopefully be able to find your way to other articles and to details of interventions in places like the community guide or just out there in articles on the web. So today, we're going to talk about what a social norm actually is, a couple of the major types of social norms campaigns in public health, and a little bit about how to get started on the formative research that can let you know whether a social norms campaign might be the right approach for you. So first, let's talk about what a norm is and what it is not. Quite often, people say to me that they're going to be following a social norms approach, but they're actually not talking about norms. And what do I mean by that? Well, one problem with the word norm is that it has become, no pun intended, normalized into the conversations of everyday people outside of public health and behavior change literature. And norm is used kind of generically to refer to all kinds of things, including customs and habits and things that people tend to do, but maybe don't do all the time, but are just maybe more typical than not typical. So, in the plain language sense, a norm can refer to all of those things. But if you're actually looking for literature, if you're investigating the academic literature, if you're looking for past interventions, you need to know what a norm is officially and what it is not. The important thing to know is that norms are more than just customs and habits. You know, customs are social they are collective behaviors that people prefer to engage in because it meets their personal needs it's gratifying to them so for example celebrating holidays or eating certain foods those are customs there are also codes or rules that we follow you know dress codes religious dietary laws those sorts of things and of course laws themselves and we may obey those but it's usually because of personal reasons or personal values, not necessarily because it's what other people are doing. In fact, sometimes you may obey a code or a rule, especially if it's something that is more cultural or religious in nature, despite the fact that the majority of the population or the majority of your group isn't necessarily obeying that code or rule. Norms are different than these because they are practices that are socially negotiated, and they are dependent on others. They're an interdependent mode of conduct. A norm is characterized as something that we are doing because other people expect us to do it and that we expect other people to do as well. So there's this mutual aspect to a norm that doesn't necessarily exist when it comes to a custom. For example, let's talk a little bit about Thanksgiving and customs and norms around that. So it may be a custom for people to serve pumpkin pie at Thanksgiving, and maybe it's something that a lot of people do, you kind of expect, maybe you do it, but if you showed up at a Thanksgiving meal and there was no pumpkin pie, you might be disappointed, but you wouldn't really be offended by it. It wouldn't be a transgression, exactly. But let's take something else, that's normative around Thanksgiving, which is your behavior at the table. It is a norm in American society, at least not to belch loudly at the Thanksgiving table. You're not gonna engage in that behavior and you don't expect other people to do it either. If they did, it would be sort of a startling transgression of a norm. I mean, if it happened accidentally, maybe a little kid or an older person or a person who was ill in some way did it, it might be shocking but understandable. However, if someone who didn't really have a good excuse for doing it did it, it would be a transgression of expected behavior. You're also not going to transgress. You're going to do your best not to let that big burp out at the table, right? So really, the definition of a norm, back to the idea that it is interdependent, is that you care about what other people are doing, and they care about what you are doing in this circumstance. Now, against the backdrop of the Thanksgiving dinner idea, you can think of probably other things that might not necessarily rise to the level of norms, but might be habits that people have. And some people may engage in them, some people may not. It could be something as simple as how food is passed at the table or what people do with their napkins when they get up from the table and you know whether they fold them or they crumple them up beside their plate and step away to get seconds. Those things are habits. But what other people do is probably not necessarily going to influence you very strongly in that situation. One other thing I want to mention here too, is that sometimes laws and norms may overlap. In other words, there may be a law that codifies or makes official a certain behavior. And maybe people would not follow that behavior if not for the law. On the other hand, there may also be a cultural norm as well as law on the books, and people might do the thing that they're supposed to do or not do the thing that they're not supposed to do in the case of a law, whether or not they face any kind of penalty. And a good example of that is jaywalking laws, which are routinely flouted in many cities around the world. But in other cities, you'll see people carefully following that law, even if the streets are empty, and there's no chance that they're going to be arrested, let alone be hit by a car. One very practical way to tell the difference between something that is merely social influence or social desirability versus a norm is to think about how someone would be regarded if they violate a norm. One of the exercises that I often do when I'm teaching a training course on social norms in health communication is during a break, if it's an in-person class, I will send people out to Gently violate a social norm and see what happens. And one of my favorites is if we're in a building where there's an elevator, is to have people ride the elevator with unsuspecting individuals and to do something in terms of body language or eye contact that is unusual. So, for example, when you get into an elevator, you know that the norm is for everyone to face the front and you don't make eye contact with the people next to you. Or if you do, it's very fleeting. But if you get into an elevator, and instead of facing the front you face the back so that you're turned to face other people it will really freak them out because it is a violation of a very common social norm if you are one of the unsuspecting individuals that is in the elevator you would probably think that the person who is violating this norm is either you know from another planet like they were just dropped into your culture yesterday Or you might worry that they perhaps had some kind of mental illness or instability. And I think that's a good test of a norm. If a person who violates the norm would be considered to be unstable, then it probably is a true norm in that culture. Likewise, if a person who would violate the norm would be ostracized by others, it probably is a true norm within that culture. The other way that you will absolutely know if there is a norm at play is because If you are the one who has been asked to go out there and violate a norm, it's going to feel extremely uncomfortable. Now, norms can very much be cultural or even subcultural. A good example is thinking about mask wearing during the COVID-19 pandemic. As anyone in the United States knows, mask wearing was not universally adopted across the country here during the pandemic. But during the pandemic, there would nonetheless have been certain subgroups in the culture, where if you had gotten together with other people, if you had been in a situation with other people, it would have been unacceptable to show up without a mask. And likewise, you would expect other people to be masked. So you can probably think about this if you had any gatherings with other folks working in public health at the height of the pandemic. My guess is that an indoor gathering would have been a masked gathering masking was a norm within certain subgroups of the culture during the pandemic. And of course, in many other countries, it was a widespread norm, whether or not there was a law in place requiring it. Now, making a big deal about the differences between norms and other things may seem overly pedantic, like, why do we care so much about this? But the reason is because social norms campaigns typically, which we're going to talk about in just a minute, are really good at dealing with norms. But there are lots of other ways that you may want to work on social factors around a behavior. And so knowing that a norm is different than, for example, social influence or social proof or social desirability can be important. All of those things are often very strong motivators for behavior, but they don't rise to the level of norms that are shared widely within a group and are interdependent. In other words, somebody doing something because of what other people expect them to do and likewise expecting others to follow the same practice. If you think a norm is involved the kinds of research that you need to do to detect it and measure it are more involved and a little more difficult than if you were just looking at something that's more surface level like social influence. So I hope that by clarifying, I can make it a little easier for you. Now, normally at this point in an episode, I would probably be introducing a couple of theories or frameworks that are specific and giving you the names of the people who originated them, I'm not going to do that in this case because there are so many theories, frameworks, and models that involve social norms that there are too many to mention and give them credit for here. Another thing that you should know is that although the basic concept behind all of those frameworks and theories and the way they use social norms is fairly similar that they actually do have subgroups of norms that have different names. Descriptive norms, injunctive norms, prescriptive norms, subjective norms. And actually, in some cases, there are two different names for something that is actually quite a similar concept. For example, injunctive norms and subjective norms are quite similar. We're not going to go over all of that detail now. I am going to give you a document that you can download with a list to get you started of many names of frameworks and models that you may want to take a look for further information on. So let's talk about the two main types of social norms campaigns that happen in public health. Probably the one that is best known to people is the type of campaign that is designed to address a misperception that needs to be corrected. We know that across many different kinds of health behaviors, people often overestimate the prevalence of unhealthy behavior and underestimate the prevalence of healthy behavior. An example that many students of public health have learned about, if you've been in an MPH program or a undergraduate public health program you probably heard about some of the campaigns that have happened on college campuses related to drinking. And the issue on college campuses is that many students have wrongly perceived heavy drinking to be the norm, when in fact, heavy drinking was not the norm. So there was a gap between what was actually happening and what people perceived that was happening, and that was influencing those students who had that misperception, and they were thinking that it was kind of an expected and normal behavior for them to binge drink. In a case like that, there needs to be a correction of the perception, a norms correction campaign. And many such campaigns have been really successful in changing the perceptions of drinking on college campuses and actually changing the behavior to reduce the incidence of binge drinking among students by correcting the norm so that they understand that actually it's fine not to drink that much. So correcting norms is one type of campaign that we see in public health. The second kind of campaign, which is a a much more difficult campaign to pull off successfully, is addressing an unhealthy behavior that is part of a deeply held norm that is in fact held by many people, the majority of people in a particular population group or cultural group. Some of the issues that fall under this kind of widely held normative belief are things like female genital mutilation and outdoor defecation in certain countries and cultures around the world. But what is important to know about many of these deeply held norms is that often they are linked to other beliefs and other social and cultural factors. And when that's the case, it's a much more complicated proposition to change those behaviors, to change those norms. And it requires a comprehensive multi-component campaign that is designed to work a little at a time to change attitudes quite gradually until a large enough group on the inside, a large enough group that is within that culture or population group is ready to take on the issue. And then suddenly it can reach a tipping point. And these kinds of campaigns typically do build pretty slowly. And then there's this sudden shift. So it's a long game to successfully launch one of these campaigns, but it can be powerful and it can be done. One complicated question, though, that you have to ask yourself before engaging in one of these norms transformation campaigns is who is seeking to make the change in this norm and why. And if it's an outside group, if you're part of an outside group, no matter how well-intentioned, it's going to require inside support. And there's also the bigger kind of self-check of who and what is served by changing a norm and whether seeking to change it, again, even if it's really well-intentioned, could be perceived as cultural imperialism, or maybe even is cultural imperialism. So it's critically important in a situation like that, if a norm is widely held by a population, if it is deeply embedded and linked to other social and cultural factors, that you're centering the population and engaging in community participatory approaches as you get started. There's an excellent, fairly recent article about this that I've linked to in the episode notes. And this is an issue that I cover in a lot more detail in my training courses, where we really break out both kinds of campaigns and how to go about them. One other thing I wanna mention is that in some cases, there is no norm for a behavior, even when you wish that there was. Sometimes you'll find this out when you start asking people in a population group about what they think other people are doing, and they don't actually know, or they guess, they say, I don't know, about half maybe are doing this, they really don't know. And Maybe the behavior that you are trying to promote does have the potential to become a norm. Maybe that's what you're aiming at. And I want to say that it can be done. A norm has to start somewhere. In fact, you may not even realize that a norm that is widely held about brushing your teeth several times a day with toothpaste was actually not a norm like a hundred years ago. It was the result of a commercial advertising campaign that promoted the idea of toothpaste. So, Changing norms can be done, and creating norms can be done. A good example of a long haul, multi-component campaign that did eventually change norms is the normative shift that we've had in the acceptability of smoking in many places, especially think about smoking in someone else's home. There used to be an expectation a generation or two ago that you could show up in anyone's home and light up and it would be just fine. There was this expectation that this is what is done, this is what people do. Now it's very much the opposite. And most people would never presume to for that to be okay. They would never want anyone to presume that it was okay in their house. It may be hard at this point to think about a time when people didn't mind other people smoking in their homes, but it was a gradual change that took many, many multi-component efforts around the issue of tobacco use in order to change that norm. So understanding the difference between correcting a norm, transforming a norm, or implementing a norm is really important. And the first step in doing it is to understand what it is that you're working with. While you can, of course, ask people about social norms, on a survey because social norms are complex, because there is some social desirability involved, because there are misperceptions involved. In a lot of cases, it can be hard to get the true sense of how powerful a norm is by asking people simply on a survey. So a critical part of this process is unpacking it with more open-ended conversation, getting people to react to scenarios, getting them to talk about their own decision-making process in a behavior that they might engage in or one that they avoid engaging in. And you're always going to get better insights about this, especially at the start, from qualitative research. And that will help you also know what the right questions are to ask in a survey. There are some specific methods for doing qualitative social norms research. And I cover a lot of those, again, in training courses, I may try to take a peek at those in a future episode, but it's its its whole own thing. And so too long to cover in this episode. However, a good start with all of this is simply doing key informant interviews uh, as a way to start gathering that information to start understanding your audience a little bit better. And we're actually going to look at the basics of key informant interviews coming up in the next episode here on HelpCom Central. So If you haven't been using interviews to augment your communication efforts, definitely be on the lookout for that episode. The last thing I want to say here that's really important is that social norms are not just something that can be used for individual behavior change. If you are working in the policy systems and environmental change arena, if you're trying to change Things that are root causes underlying the social determinants of health. You can also influence the behavior of policymakers and decision makers using a campaign built around correcting or transforming social norms among those policymakers. Now, in my training courses and my strategic communication work that I do with public health agencies, this is one of the things that I stress policymakers are individuals too. So their decisions to advocate or vote for or fund particular policies, those decisions are behaviors. And voting behavior, like health behavior, can be influenced by behavior change approaches at the individual level. So to make a community level change that can improve health, you may actually need to rely on individual behavior change of the people making the policies. On the topic of social norms, I've put together a little handout with a few questions that you can ask yourself about the issue that you're dealing with to understand whether it is actually a norm that you're dealing with, or a custom, a habit, a code, or something else. And that lists many of the theories and frameworks that involve social norms in some way. And by my count, there are nearly 25 of them that are on that handout. There are probably more that I've missed. But again, if you're looking for ways to go about creating a campaign or intervention, you may want to do some searches looking for some of those theories and frameworks and see if you can find past successful campaigns that are attached to any of them. To get that handout, go to healthcomcentral.com forward slash Social norms checklist. Again, healthcomcentral.com forward slash social norms checklist. One thing I also want you to know is that if you have been hesitant to get any of these downloads because it asks for your email address in order to do so, please do not worry that you're going to get spammed if you give me your email address. That is not how I do things. I occasionally send an email to let you know about other learning opportunities. So, If you want to hear about those, be sure to give me an address that you can actually check on a regular basis. But no matter what email address you give me, you're only going to hear occasionally from me and you can unsubscribe at any time. So don't hesitate to get those downloadable handouts and use them. That's it for our quick look at social norms and social norms campaigns in today's episode. I am so glad that you took the opportunity to listen to HealthCom Central today, and I hope that you will pass on the link to the podcast to your friends and colleagues. And if you have a moment, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating and review. You should be able to find that if you just scroll down in whatever podcast platform you're using. Your rating and review helps other people find it. So it's a really important part of getting this information out to the people who need it. And I thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for spreading the word. I'll be back with another episode very soon. In the meantime, stay well, stay safe, and stay science-based. Bye for now. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment now to leave a rating and review. Be sure to subscribe to HealthCom Central on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have friends and colleagues who should be part of our community, please share the link.